0: Well, who's excited summer's here? Okay, I can't see faces, so I don't know who to judge for that, but uh, anybody else a little caught off guard yesterday? Like, you know, it had been spring for a couple of days, and then suddenly it's mid-90s and humid. We got all of it. You know, we had Amelie, had, or Elsie, my oldest, had a soccer game at 8 o'clock in the morning yesterday, and we knew what it was going to get up to. We leave for the game and it's like 65 degrees, I'm like this is perfect, you know, so I throw a t-shirt on, I put a, a lightweight pullover over the top of it, we get out there and I'm just like, this is stupid, like it's so muggy at eight o'clock in the morning that I feel like, you know, it's almost like you can't breathe and yeah, so welcome to summer. Those of you who love triple digits and humidity, you're welcome, I guess, so hope you're happy. Hey, we're glad you're here with us today. If you're joining us in person, you're joining us online, uh, we're honored that you've uh, carved out some of your Sunday morning to spend with us. We were in week four of this series called Shoes, where we've been looking at six different people. We're going to have two more weeks of this, where um, six different people that interacted with Jesus. In in some cases, like today and and, a couple weeks ago, It's somebody that, as far as we know, it was a one and done, one one interaction with Jesus and that's it. Some others that we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks walked with Jesus for years. Uh, But in each of these cases, an interaction with Jesus that led to a transformation in life that we still can experience today, and we we kind of play with this and say, what kind of shoes would this person have put on today, or put put on in, in, in today's world? Today we're going to put on a pair of, I'm just going to call these stilettos. I was informed earlier they're not stilettos. My defense is I'm a guy, and I don't know the difference, okay? But a pair of high-heeled stiletto shoes, maybe these that are a little extra sparkly, like the ones I dug out of a box in the back of my closet this morning that uh, belonged to my wife. Previously, apparently belonged to someone named Emily, based on the garage sale sticker she has here, but that's beside the point. Um, but a pair of shoes that uh, many of you ladies might have worn at some point. Maybe you're wearing some today. You typically wear them when you're dressed nicely or maybe wearing a dress even sometimes with a a business suit, for example, can be worn. But they're also a pair of shoes that sometimes can be worn to kind of attract attention, especially when they're a little extra sparkly, a little extra shiny. It may be something to kind of say, hey, look at me. And, And despite the fact that so many of you wear them, you know, just to look nice, sometimes they get worn by women with the wrong intentions. We're going to read a story about a woman today who might have worn a pair of stilettos. She's met in John chapter 4, which we're going to jump into in a minute, but you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. As you read this story, we kind of find a transition for Jesus. He's been down in Judea, and we've read about that two of the last three weeks. We talked about Nicodemus in week one of this series, at the beginning of John 3, last week John the Baptist, at the end of John chapter 3, Phil talked about the Roman centurion a couple of weeks ago, kind of sandwiched in between there. Today we see Jesus starting to transition from Judea up towards Galilee, where his ministry is really going to get going full speed. But to get from Judea to Galilee, you pass through Samaria, and that's where Jesus is at in John chapter 4 when he encounters a woman that we'll just say she's got a, a less than glamorous past. We don't know exactly what this woman has done. We, we read some details that Jesus says you know, she's been married multiple times, and she's currently sleeping with a man who's not her husband, so I don't really know what this woman is. Some scholars, some commentators will say that she's an adulteress because he says she's sleeping with a man who's not her husband. doesn't say if she's actively married or not. She's just with somebody she's not married to. Some commentators will will take this to mean that this is a woman who's uh, resorted to uh, prostitution. Others will look at this and say, this is just simply a victim of a broken system. Whatever the case, I'm not really sure. We know that this woman comes to Jesus with a lot of baggage and with a lot of messiness and a lot of brokenness, and she's coming, I think, not just to Jesus, but she's coming possibly trying to be seen, or at least to be seen by the right people. Whatever her case, we know that she she comes to Jesus, and she's not going to be somebody that most people are going to look at and find her super desirable, She's not going to be the pick for most men or even for most people to be a part of their lives. I kind of picture her as one of these that really tries to cover up who she is, really tries to lay it on thick, like maybe she cakes on the makeup a little too heavy. Maybe she dresses to accentuate her features just a little too much. You know, maybe she's the one that, her Instagram page is just full of selfies from just the right angles, you know, and she's really trying to make somebody see who she is, but specifically who she's not. Whatever it is that she's doing, she's trying to draw attention away from her past and to where she is right now. She's an outcast, and she knows it. And she's somebody who, to some degree, doesn't want to be caught up in everybody else's life because she knows what comes with that. Judgment. Maybe the side eye. Maybe the grumbles and the mumbles when she gets there. John writes at the beginning of this story in verse 6 that it was the sixth hour And like so much in John that I've told you about, there's always so much more meaning to just a simple little detail in John. It's the sixth hour means it was noon. Women would not come to the well to get water at noon. They came early in the morning. Think about like a day like today or like we're gonna get into soon in the summertime. If you've got work to do outside, you do it early in the day. Why? Because it's cool. You get it done before it gets hot. They wouldn't come out in the heat of the day to do this. But yet here she is coming out Much later than the rest of the women. Why? I think it's simple. She just didn't want to associate with the crowd. She didn't want to be looked at or judged. Maybe she was, maybe it's as simple as she was just too busy that morning to go do it. You know, sometimes our routines get thrown because something comes up. Whatever the case is though, as we look into her story, as we start to read about this interaction with Jesus, we find something out. This is a woman who is searching for something. She's seeking something. And I think more specifically, she is seeking answers to a question that she doesn't even know she's asking. I think she's looking for something that's out there. And I don't know exactly what it was that brought her to this time and this place at this exact moment, other than just simply God's plan. But I'm so glad it did. And I'm glad that we get to read about it in John 4, because I think when we're honest, We can often put ourselves in both of these sets of shoes, both her stiletto's and Jesus' shoes, too. Because sometimes we're the role of Jesus for somebody like this woman comes to us, and we have to decide how we're gonna respond. And sometimes I would say more often, we're the woman coming to Jesus broken and messy and full of questions, and I and and just wondering, you've ever been lost, you ever been searching? And, and you can't even find a landmark, you can't even find anything that looks remotely familiar to you, I think that's where she's at right now. For some of us, sometimes our biggest challenge is learning just a little bit more about Jesus so we can know what to ask him or what question, to, or what, what to approach him with or what step to take next. And maybe you're here today and that's you. Maybe you're watching online today and that's you. You're not even sure what you're supposed to do next. The story of this woman at the well in Samaria, I think sheds so much light. So much so that John devotes an entire chapter to this. A couple of weeks ago, we read about the centurion. That's a handful of verses. In chapter three, he gives us two different stories of two very well-known people, but he gives an entire chapter to this woman that we never hear about again after this. That's why I think this conversation that they have is so important. And what I want to do is a little bit different today. I just want to walk through this text, but I'm going to kind of dive bomb a couple parts because it's such a big chunk of scripture and make three observations that I think we can apply today, whether you're seeking Jesus or you're trying to represent Jesus to somebody else who is seeking the world around us today. Here's the first observation that we're going to make. Jesus breaks down barriers. He breaks barri- or breaks down barriers. Often they're barriers that we have put up. But again, he's setting by this well in Samaria. Around noon. And as he's sitting there, John writes like this in verse 7 When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? You can read this, and I'm not really sure how you respond or think when you read this particular statement from from Jesus. Uh, I'm not really sure because that's not probably something that I would do, you know, if I'm out and about and I just see some random woman go, Hey, would you please go get me a drink? Probably not gonna ask that, but you know, maybe that was something that that wasn't that uncommon back then. But her response is very interesting. In verse nine, it says the Samaritan woman said to him, "You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans." She says a lot right there. Let's unpack her statement because there's a lot of context in this. Because right off the bat, we are seeing two barriers that have been put up that Jesus. Is knocking down. The first is a societal or a cultural barrier. You could also just call it a racial barrier if you wanted to. Jews and Samaritans. Okay, we kind of talked about this before, but just to kind of rehash the difference here Samaritans basically were Jewish people who originated as Jewish people who kind of left the tribe, so to speak, and married and had children with non Jews. And over the course of time, over the course of generations, they more or less, according to the Jews, watered down the gene pool, so to speak. They diluted down the race. They diluted down who we are. And so as a result, the Samaritans were looked down upon as half-breeds. They were hated. They were despised. They were less than. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan was so controversial when Jesus told it, because there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan to the Jewish people. There's a barrier here, and to the point where they were actually pushed out of Jerusalem. They were pushed out of of Judea. They had to go live in their own region and worship in their own area on Mount Gerizim. There's that societal barrier there. But there's also a gender barrier here. I mean, she says it very clearly. Jesus is a man, and she very obviously is not. In Jewish culture, women were also considered inferior to men. So no self-respecting Jewish man would ever have a conversation with a woman, especially a woman that wasn't his wife and in public. And here's Jesus initiating one, two major barriers at play that Jesus, in one breath, knocks down. This example of Jesus, it's symbolic to the barrier that is put up between a holy God and us as his rebellious children. Go back to the beginning of your Bible, and you read in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. He creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and then he creates man, and we read about this heaven on earth called Eden. I get a glimpse of Eden and I just think that's what heaven's going to be, this perfect paradise where there's no pain and there's no suffering and, and everything is just as, as good, if not better, than you could possibly imagine. But man sins. And by sinning, he dilutes that down. He dilutes down what God had created. And so God pushes him out. And it says at the end of Genesis 3, the Lord God banished the man from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a terrifying image to me. I don't know, like I always picture this angel as like gigantic and just f- this flaming sword just swishing, like something you'd see on the Lord of the Rings or something. You know, just like swishing it around and, and not letting anybody get through. That's the barrier that was put up, not because God doesn't like us or can't stand us, but because sin has no place with God, and sin dilutes down what God had created for us, and therefore sin cannot enter his perfect paradise. It can't remain there. It has to be banished. It has to be pushed away. That's how the Jewish people viewed Samaritans, that they had sinned against God, and they had pushed them out. Symbolism aside, barriers still exist in our world today. They're barriers we create, barriers that we as a society decide that we want in place. There are things that are, are walls built on things like socioeconomic status or race or politics or, or maybe the neighborhood you live in or even, even personal interests sometimes. And we've made it very difficult for people on the outside of those walls to get in. Sometimes the walls exist for a reason. Sometimes walls are a good thing. We have walls on our house to protect us from what? The elements, right? We have locks on our doors to keep unwanted, potentially dangerous people out. We put fences and walls around playgrounds at schools and parks to protect our children, both so they don't wander off and so people who shouldn't be there can't get in. But sometimes... Sometimes the people on the outside of those walls who are trying to get in are people like this woman who are just wandering, seeking answers to questions they don't even know how to ask. And sometimes the walls actually can be a bad thing. Jesus, the good news about him is he came and he knocked those walls down. We keep trying to put them back up, but he just keeps knocking them right back down. Ephesians chapter 2 says, for Christ himself has brought us peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, get this, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, here it is again, Christ reconciled both groups by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other, was put to death. It wouldn't be nice if that's it and that's all. But yet we keep building walls. Paul's writing here that because of what Jesus did on the cross, there's no longer need for that cherubim with the flaming sword to keep us from God. The blood of Jesus gets us to God. It reconciles us to God. But Paul also writes here that Jesus is the great equalizer. That because of Jesus, there's no more separation between us, despite what we think and what we might want. In our lives, that plays out like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in and through us and is the great equalizer in our lives. But sadly, we still build barriers today. Even as a church, we'll build walls and we'll build barriers. And we sometimes get selective on who gets to come inside. We get selective on who gets to come through the gate. And sometimes we start to profile people as they do. You ever done a double take or a side eye on somebody who's sitting in church? Because if you are, you're like the rest of us. Sometimes that's very easy to look across your room and go, what's he doing here? And maybe you're saying it because you're genuinely surprised that that person's here, but maybe you're saying it because it's like, they don't belong here, not at our church. They need to go down there where those sinners are. We kind of forget why we're here. We kind of forget the whole purpose of what we're doing here. Let me ask you a question, church. Somebody walks through the door in a pair of sparkly, shiny stilettos, what's your reaction going to be? What's your response going to be? let's be honest, they're probably not walking through wearing a pair of sparkly, shiny stilettos. Maybe they walk through the door wearing a t-shirt with a huge marijuana leaf on the front. Maybe they walk through with a slogan that you don't really like. Maybe they walk through holding hands with somebody of the same sex. Maybe they walk through and you know every single thing that that person has ever done. What's your reaction then? What's your reaction then? Is it a side eye and a go, we we don't support your kind of people here. Or, do you have the same response that Jesus had, where you approach them and you show them love? Remember what Jesus said to the church people, the Pharisees, when he called a dirty, rotten, no-good tax collector to follow him, and then he went to a party at his house. And what does he tell them? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Folks, if everybody had everything about Jesus all figured out. We really don't need to be here. <laughs> just like a hospital doesn't need to exist if there's no sickness in the world. Jesus, time and time again, reached out through the barriers that were set up. He didn't tell people, you know what, I don't care what kind of lifestyle you live. I accept all of it. That's not what he told them. He said, I love you anyway, and I want you to follow me. And as he followed him, they became more like him, and they left the life of sin behind. But if we don't even allow it to walk through the door, then what are we doing here? What's our purpose? What's our point? Jesus, time and time again in the Gospels, breaks down barriers, and he reaches out to those that other people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And every single time, he responds to them just like he responded to that woman in John chapter 8 when he said, I don't condemn you for your sin either, but go and sin no more. He takes them where they're at, and he gets them out of their messiness and brokenness, and he points them towards God, and he walks with them as they continue to walk. Church, that's our challenge, is to break those barriers down and to walk with people so they can walk with Jesus. Here's the second observation we get from this story. You can't understand who Jesus really is until you get close to him. Suddenly, that first one with the barriers makes a bit more sense, right? Right? We can't expect somebody to know who Jesus is and understand him if we keep them away from Jesus, if we keep Jesus away from them. Sometimes I think that's what we do, right? We want to protect our God and our Jesus from the people out there, and that's the danger because he doesn't need us to fight that battle for him. He's God. He can do it pretty well on his own. He's got it taken care of, but you can't understand who he really is until you get close to him. This woman has just pointed out the two obvious statements, that she's a woman and he's a man and she's Samaritan and he's Jewish. And here's how Jesus responds to this in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, get me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you getting that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I like to kind of picture this. I don't know what this well looked like. But we were up at Legends yesterday, so just because of freshness on my mind, I'm thinking of the huge fountain out in front of the AMC theater. So I'm just picturing Jesus sitting on the side of that that fountain, and he's just sitting there. You know, when she comes to the well, she's probably got her bucket or she's got something to get water, and he's offering her a drink now. And she's like, oh, you have nothing to get me a drink with. No cup, no bottle of water, nothing. So what are you offering me? What we see here is what we so often see with Jesus. He is speaking figuratively. She is thinking literally. She sees the well that is deep and thinks about the water that's down there that we need to drink to keep us alive. He's talking about living water, which we, of course, now know is eternal life, but this was a new concept for them. This is new for her. We see this often in, in the Gospels, Jesus speaking figuratively but not being understood. It's obvious from the outset that she has no idea who he is that she really doesn't know. And it's easy, again, for us to be in Jesus' spot here and view somebody who comes to us maybe either asking a question that we think is an obvious question or not accepting or responding to an answer that we give them because it doesn't make sense to them. And what happens here is sometimes as Christians, we forget a key detail here that a person's inability to act like Jesus probably stems from the fact that they just know very little about Jesus. You think about this for a moment. How can you act like somebody that you don't know? We, we like the phrase over here, you know, belong, believe, become. But how can you become if you don't get a chance to belong and believe first? That we expect them to act like Jesus and know Jesus? How can they do that if they don't understand Jesus? If you've been married, you kind of understand how this works a little bit. Jennifer and I are going to celebrate our 14th anniversary this next month. And we think about this because we've been married 14 years, we dated about a year before that, we'd known each other for probably close to 10 years um, before that. I say we weren't necessarily friends, we were more acquaintances, we had mutual friends, we knew who each other was, we were at neighboring high schools, Uh, I joked that she worked with my girlfriend, at Sonic, at the time, and they all knew who I was, because apparently even when uh, Chelsea, my my old girlfriend and I were off. I was off limits to the rest of Sonic. I learned about that years later. Uh, it explained a lot uh, because I mean I drove a Jeep. I was desirable, right? You know. <clears throat> but I knew that they all knew who I was because I used the same buy uh, get a free hamburger card for three years. Until finally one day one didn't give it back to me and I'm like, it's my free hamburger card. Like I probably had at least a hundred hamburgers off that card in three years, right? But. We started getting to a point in our, in our mid-20s when we just decided that we wanted to maybe engage each other a little deeper than just a casual conversation, and that led to daily conversations with each other. Even when she was in Africa and I was in Oklahoma, we were chatting through the beginning stages of Facebook Messenger, back when it was still Facebook email, kind of dating ourselves a little bit. It wasn't the Facebook anymore, but it was Facebook Messenger. But we chatted through that, and then when she came back, we started spending time together every day, and and that just led to a deeper understanding of each other and a deeper knowledge of each other, and ultimately to a more intimate place with how we knew each other, to where we decided that we wanted to make a commitment and get married, and so we did that. And then what happens after you get married? You move into each other, and you realize how little you actually knew about this person at all. Like, oh, you fold the towels like that, okay, okay. Is that really where you want the plates to go? I mean, they make more sense over here, right? And by the way, aren't newlywed arguments so fun? Because they're more like a question with a high-pitched tone that's a suggestion. Like, is that really where we should put that? It always goes up. I don't know why. The the inflection always goes up. They're always so so interesting and fun. Because you don't want to pointedly say somebody's wrong just yet. Okay? But we look back at that. And we realized that even though we knew each other enough to love each other and want to make a commitment, we really didn't know each other that well. 14 years later, we're, we're learning each other better. We still learn each other every day. There's still some days where she can predict what I'm thinking and guess what I'm going to do next, and some days that she, she can't. And I'm the same way with her. Some of you have been married 40, 50, maybe 60-plus years to the point where you know exactly what your partner's thinking, and you're already anticipating that you're not going to like it and how you're going to respond. To it. I see some people looking at each other right now. It's getting uncomfortable up here. I won't say who, but I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> but you get it, right? The more you spend with somebody, the better that you get to know them. The more time that you are with them, the more intimately you get to know who they are. And the same thing applies to our relationship with Jesus. You can't or you can't know enough about Jesus to understand who he really truly is until you spend time daily with him. And think about this, again, to go back to Jennifer and I, if our entire relationship was commu- was hanging out one hour a week with each other, and then maybe just calling each other when we were in desperate need of something, would we possibly have gotten married? Well, we wouldn't be in the spot we're in today. So how is it any different with Jesus See, here's the issue when it comes to Jesus that that often we don't allow him to pull and stretch us the way that we want to be pulled or need to be pulled and stretched. We don't allow him to mold us to become like him because we're not spending enough time with him. The case of this woman at the well, she is starting to get her understanding stretched and get who she is stretched and challenged, just like Nicodemus did in in John chapter 3. She doesn't understand completely about Jesus at first, obvious by her response. But as the conversation goes, and the more he says to her, the more something clicks. And she understands that even if she doesn't know everything about Jesus, she wants to follow him anyway and tell everyone about him. And suddenly, all that baggage that she has doesn't matter quite so much anymore. Here's our third observation that we're going to make today. To follow Jesus, you have to leave your past behind. This can be the hard one. And even coming out at 8 o'clock, a couple of people stop me and goes, hey, it's so hard to do. And I said, yeah, and it makes you just like the rest of us because that's so hard to do, to leave your past behind. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Lion King. <laughs> Talking about the old, original, animated one. And my two favorite characters, you can probably guess them, are Timon and Pumbaa. I love, you know, the meerkat and the warthog. Just because I always said one of my bucket list items is I would love to play Timon in a theatrical version of The Lion King. It hasn't happened yet, but that's, you know, that's on the bucket list. So don't be shocked if you see it one day, right? But one of my favorite lines in the movie is right after they meet Simba, he's run away from the pride. He's run away from, from the pack because of of the baggage that he has, or at least that he's been told that he has. and Pumbaa very confidently sticks his chest out and very proudly says, you've got to leave your behind, past you. Obviously, he gets his words flipped, but his intention and meaning is true, right? Sometimes you've just got to draw a line in the sand and step over it and say, no more. No matter what I've done, no matter what I've brought to the table, no matter what baggage and garbage I have, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know exactly what all this woman has, but it's not pretty, and it's obvious. And the more she spends time with Jesus, and the more she talks to him, the more she realizes she doesn't really care about that baggage anymore, and she doesn't really care what everybody else thinks about it either. Because as it moves on, and they've had this conversation, and she's been pushed and stretched and challenged, it says in verse 28 that the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man that told me all I ever did. Could he be the Christ? She doesn't even understand everything about Jesus and all she can do is tell people about Jesus to the point where she just forgets everything that she was about to do. So she left her jar there. That's actually probably a literal statement here with some symbolic meaning. She was probably so excited that she just left it there and ran off. We see this other places in the Gospels. Luke 5 is a great example. Jesus is calling his disciples. He calls a set of fishermen, and it says they left their nets in their boats, and they followed Jesus. Now, we assume they had somebody to take care of those for them. But in a couple of cases, we read that they left a, a net full of fish. That might have been their week's wages, and they just left it to go follow Jesus. Later in Luke 5, he calls a tax collector that we talked about earlier by the name of Levi. We come to know him as Matthew a Jew working for the Romans in a a coveted position that made him a hated person. And he got up and left and walked away from his tax booth. There's no coming back to that. He can't come back a week later and say, I changed my mind, can I have my job back? Nope, too late. They just left it all behind. Church, are you willing to leave it all behind and follow Jesus? I don't know what's in your past. You may have a laundry list of stuff that, that could make some people blush. Here's the thing, the blood of Jesus covers every single drop of that. And this woman is starting to understand this. And just like those men who became disciples, immediately she goes to follow him. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've got a story where your first step was into the deep end of the pool. Maybe you're more like Nicodemus that we read a couple weeks ago. It's more of a gradual You know, you've got to kind of work your way down into it. I don't care which one it is. Either one of them, so long as you're moving towards God, you're moving in the right direction. As as long as your steps are taking you closer to Jesus and getting you further away from the past that you have behind you. Unfortunately, this is a, a trap for so many people. It's an obstacle that they can't overcome looking at what they have in their background, what they have in their past, knowing not only what they did, but knowing everybody else knows what they did. They struggle to grasp the concept of grace. I've had family members like this and friends like this, and it breaks my heart to have the conversations with them because maybe they struggle to forgive other people. Maybe they struggle to see hypocrisy in other people, so therefore they think God couldn't possibly forgive somebody like them for doing what they did. And I always think, I wish I would just read the words of Dwight Moody when he said, grace means undeserved kindness. It's a gift of God to man the moment he sees he is unworthy of God's favor. Grace, it's unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve, not getting what you do deserve. This woman, this woman shows us this. I don't know what came of the rest of her story, She's not really talked about again. We can make assumptions, but we know that by the end of John chapter four, her fire for God is so strong that she doesn't care what she doesn't know. She doesn't care about any of that. All she cares about is telling people about Jesus because Jesus let her in. Church, what's our challenge today? It's to keep people, or to to, to stop keeping people out. And start letting people in because who knows what they might hear, who knows how they might be stretched and challenged when they get to encounter Jesus. Because I know this: it's hard to leave a life of sin behind if you're constantly being pushed back into it. And sometimes, as a church, we can do that. Maybe, maybe that's you on the other side of that line today. Maybe you're in that life of sin and you feel like you can't step out of it. I don't know where you fall on that today. I don't know where you're at on your path with Jesus today. Maybe you've been walking this path for a long time. Maybe, maybe this is your first time here today. Maybe it's your first time hearing about the blood and the, and the grace of Jesus today. So my, my takeaway challenge is for both of you. Take your next step. Whatever it is, take your next step. Even if it's your first step. Maybe your next step, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, your next step is to plug in a little deeper, to dive a little deeper. Maybe it's on the other side and your first step is to come back next week. Or it's to buy a Bible. Or it's to ask a question that you might get laughed at for because it might seem like a silly question. Maybe that's your first step. Can I just encourage you? This woman that knew what everybody thought about her. Let her faith become bigger than all of that. She let her faith drive her life. And that's my challenge for you, that's my encouragement for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've come from, the blood of Jesus washes over all of it. Let your faith be bigger. Let's pray, Father, we're so, so grateful. We're so grateful for the blood of Jesus that is the great equalizer across our world today. We're so grateful for the grace that you offer through that blood. It covers my sin. And it washes away my past that I wish, I wish I could make people forget about. But your blood takes it away. And it makes gives me an opportunity to come to you and be reconciled to you. God, I pray across the room, everybody online this morning, Lord, that you would give them that reminder. You would let them know, no matter what the past holds, the future through you is eternity. And the future through your son is eternal life. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.
1: Would you stand and sing with us? I pray this for you. I pray, pray for, for your healing. Circumstances, circumstances would change. I pray the that, that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray and that a breakthrough, happen what I I that a breakthrough what happened would happen today. today. I pray there miracles of over your life, Jesus. Jesus. Name in Jesus' name, I speak the name of all authority. For your healing, the circumstances would change. I pray that the people side would me in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles of your life in Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Circumstances for change. I pray that the fear inside will flee. In Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough will happen today. I pray miracles over your life. In Jesus' name. That the fear inside. Would lead. In Jesus' name, I pray that I breakthrough through what happened today. I pray miracles of early life. In Jesus' name, I pray for revival, restoration of faith. I pray that the dead will come alive name in Jesus name so at this time we're going to move into a mode of communion so would you please be seated and you can start getting that ready
0: Here we go again whoa Here we go again right?